this is Fintech Unplugged with Suresh Vajani and me, Robert Cornish. We're here today at Fintech Connect. Suresh is the technical guy, obviously. He runs a technology company and he can't turn on a mic. But we expect that from uh, someone of his uh, level of skill and ingenuity. Uh, Suresh, what, what brings you to uh, Fintech Connect? Well, when I found out, Robert, that you weren't going to be here for most of the day, I thought this is the place to be. We got a big stand. We exhibited here. I thought it's one of the few places I'm not going to see Robert for the whole day. I had to come. <laughs> well, thank you for that. And, uh, and we have our wonderful guest from N26, not to be muddled up with the M27, which is a motorway that takes you down to Portsmouth, where I come from. Anyway, N26, uh, if you don't know what it is, I can tell you. Okay, N26 is a digital bank. Uh, we operate in 26 markets across the world. Uh, we are growing rapidly at a daily rate. So uh, really kind of leading the charge in Europe across that digital banking space. Coming to the UK, uh, we're playing with the likes of Monzo, Starling, Revolut. Absolutely fantastic competitors to work with um, or work against, mm, depending on which way you look at it. We also launched in the States a couple of months ago. So let me get this straight. N26... Fintech Bank, Germany. So I just, I just want to make sure we've kind of got that right because, you know, when you look at the European regulators, you know, generally Germany doesn't always kind of rate very high to say, you know what, we're starting a fintech, we want to be in Germany because the regulators love us. Yeah, I think the German Banking Authority, or affectionately known as the BaFin, uh, is pretty notorious as far as its standards are concerned. When Max and Valentin started the organisation, we're only five and a half, six years old, and uh, they started in an incubator, um, which was based out of Berlin. And when they thought about where they were going to set up the company, uh, they really looked at it just from a any startup founder's perspective, right? So should we go to London? Oh God, that looks expensive. People cost a lot of money there. Uh, and actually they were in Berlin and it was really a burgeoning startup scene. It's a very uh, vibrant startup community with founders, investors, um, a lot of early stage investors like Early Bird, um, really promoting the market there. So I think that was a really natural progression. But I mean, we're five and a half years in and we've got offices in Barcelona. We've got about 130 people in Barcelona. Uh, also Vienna, which we just opened recently, and we've got about 70 people sitting in New York working on our uh, US product as well. So I have a question for you, um, and it might be an urban myth. Now, the first time I read about N26 when it first launched Early Doors was that N26 started to close the accounts of some of the most active customers because... N26 worked out that it's costing them every time they use an ATM machine. Were you in the business then? Uh, so the first question, uh, the second question, no, I wasn't. But the first question makes the second redundant because that is, that is a total urban myth. <laughs> Um, I think maybe it's being confused with uh, Monzo's very open conversation about their free ATM withdrawals. Um, but we do have a very, what's the word, lots of ATM withdrawals. Uh, so we do have limits, um, but we have an open ATM withdrawals policy across our markets. So if, as far as ATM withdrawals are concerned, I think one of the things about uh, cash 
it's an interesting topic because I think in the UK, especially being here today, I was at a conference recently chatting with the guys from MasterCard and 22% of the UK market still use predominantly cash in their day-to-day life. So it's clearly not evident at the conference here today where everything is a tap and go. But ATM withdrawals are really, really important. So it's something that we actually look at actively. Also, the topic of this cashless society is really interesting as well. So at N26, we are clearly of a digital bank and we want to push people into the digital side of, of banking. But on the other hand, we also believe that it's not a bank's responsibility to tell people how to manage their money. So we need to give people the flexibility to do banking the way that they want to. And if cash management is one of those things, then we're working to make sure that we have that option for them too. So um, what you are unaware of at the moment is we have something known as the bin of confusion, which Suresh is going to bring Bo- over box. here. It's a box of confusion, but it does say bin on the front. Uh, and during the day today, uh, various uh, unknown people have been putting questions in here. And uh, we're going to have a look at what they are, and we're going to ask you. And the whole point of this is you've got no idea what they are. We've got no idea, uh, but we don't have to answer them. And so just, just on that point on the cash thing, I just want to let you know that a lot of cash. that cash data is actually Robert yeah. because he uses cash and he can't be traced based on where he's spending money from. Um, I'm not on the mic. It's not working, right? It's, it's all right. It's all right. Totally confidential. HMRC have not heard you, Suresh. <laughs> Keep that cash in your pocket. So with so much fake news, lying politicians and even royalty... Wow, that was interesting. That was in what response the, uh, to the royalty what comment. The something, uh, I'm not reading that word because it's a, it's a swear word and we do not swear on FinTech Unplugged, as you know, we're very uh, sensible. Can Challenger Bank's hope to win consumer trust? What even is trust about these days? I think one of the things that really pushed digital banking to the next level was the fact that the cycle of anxiety that people live in as far as finance is concerned is real, right? So... We're not dealing with level playing field. So there's two parts to the answer. The first is what is trust? So the cliche answer is trust is is trust. <laughs> and trust is the same no matter if you're talking about a banking application or if you're talking about a relationship that you're having or if you're talking about your friendship group, whatever it is. There are the same elements that are associated with building trust. And those are, as we talk about it at N26, um, the credibility, reliability and intimacy. And those things are generic in the form of their definition. So credibility, like you are who you say you are. So imagine that banking is like Tinder, right? And you go on this first Tinder app date. Robert's listening. You're listening? Yeah, swipe right. Is that how it works? (laughs) I don't know. Hi, husband. But imagine it's like Tinder. So you turn up onto this first date. You've never met this person. You've just seen a bit of information about what they do, who they are, and probably a fake picture, let's be honest. And you turn up. Are they credible? So did you ask a few people around? Do you do you know who they are? Do you know what this bank is? Are they reliable? Do they turn up on time? Do they do what they say they're going to do? Do they? Um, is the service reliable? Does it open when you need it to open? Is it there for you when you need it to be? And then there's that level of intimacy. And the intimacy is literally the way I see it. Do you feel like yourself with them? So we've all been in relationships that you didn't feel like yourself, you felt like you were performing or acting. Technology is similar, and that's where platform technology is amazing. The responsibility of a platform is to create an environment where you feel like you're in control of that answer. So at N26, we think about that that intimacy as come into our world and we will 
handle all the other stuff, but we will give you a platform that you need so that you can manage your money. And that's how we look at our products. So giving people the power to live in bank that they want to is really kind of the end goal. We're dealing in a world where we're competing. So fintechs and and a lot of the digital banks that are here today um, have this dual issue, right? And we've got on one side, we're dealing from a regulatory perspective and a compliance perspective, and we're dealing with banks that have been in markets for decades, hundreds of years, some of them. Um, And on the other side, we're being compared to Netflix and Spotify and Facebook. Um, And unfortunately, from a consumer perspective, as far as Facebook is concerned, let's take them because recently they've been very adamant that they're a platform, not a media company. Um, but the information that we share on Facebook, we're so naive about it because we think that we're just connecting with our friends. Um, and so we come into Facebook with this air of trust, right? Because what I'm doing isn't distrustful and doesn't create distrust. But actually, so the trust is Facebook's to lose. On a fintech side of things, we have to earn the trust from the beginning. So we start, if you've got this level playing field of where the baseline is, we start like 14 steps below. So everything that we do has to build up to that point where the consumer trusts us. Um, And this is something that we're not only fighting against uh, like digital companies like the Netflixes and the, and the Facebooks, but also from a traditional standpoint, that trust is there because your dad had a bank account with them and you had one for the last 15 years and there's this emotional trust that's associated with that longevity of relationship. Are quotas to create gender diversity a good thing? <laughs> I didn't write it there. It's, look, it's there. Okay, so this is an interesting question. So if you had asked me five or six years ago, I would have argued that uh, quotas weren't a good thing and they were unnecessary and and people should get their jobs based on merit. I still think all of those same things about my answer, um, but I see more value in quotas as a tool. The reason that I see that is because if you are hiring a role and you are looking at a CV one-to-one, what you don't know about those two CVs is that one person had way more opportunities to build out their CV than the other person. Um, And you won't ever know that, right? And so then how do we get around that and work out how to give the opportunities to people who are potentially just as qualified or are the right person for the job, but perhaps it's not on paper or perhaps they haven't been given that opportunity before. And then the second part of that is... As a, as a, a woman in a C-level role in, in tech, um, there's, I'll be completely honest, there's been so many times where people have implied or insinuated to me that I got a job because of a quota. And that made me angry earlier in my career that someone would uh, assume, yeah, assume that I, that I didn't deserve the position that I was in. Um, what's really interesting is as I've progressed in my career, I now believe that I don't care how I got the job, right? I will earn the right to the job. You can fire me if it's if it's wrong and if I get it wrong, that's totally up to you. But the, I'm gonna use this opportunity no matter how I got it to prove that I'm the best person for the role. In the current market, what is more important? Marketing or product? Now, being the CPO, <laughs> I'm guessing what your answer is gonna be. You assume. <laughs> I think that it depends on what stage of the company that you're at. 
there's two parts to it, right? It's a little bit chicken and egg, and in the end, you need both. Um, so you can start with one or the other. I would recommend that as a fintech um, or a, a financial solution, you work on your product, right? Because to be perfectly honest, good taglines and just pure marketing, it's such a trusting thing and people are so emotional about finance that if they get there and it's not what you said that it was, then you're done as far as that's concerned. In other fields, I think marketing is really, really powerful. And I also think that you can get to a point where you're building amazing products, but if you're not doing your marketing properly or you're not doing your product marketing properly, then not enough people will see that and you won't, get the, you won't earn the right to continue to build that great product. So I, I learned something interesting recently that WD-40 yeah, is, is, uh, is, is, stands for water dispenser, um, and it was basically the 20th attempt uh, for them to actually get that. So what's N26? Is, is it the 26th attempt to... What's the origins of the name? So I actually think there are multiple stories of this going around. But the official story is that there... I think that there was... There's two ways to say the story. One is that there's 26 ways to solve a Rubik's Cube. Or the other is that our founder can solve a Rubik's Cube in 26 seconds. You can choose which one is true. (laughs) Could you tell us more more about some of the weirder ones? There are uh, 26 ways to build build a product. The other one was that we were at number 26, the house. So there's there's no kind of science behind that. It was the address that the product was built at. Um, And I've heard some very strange ones about... 26 types of people, 26, essentially variations on how many 26 things that there are in the world. Maybe 26. I think I heard one recently, which was 26, the 26th position of the Kama Sutra, but I'm pretty sure that's not true. (laughs) You're going to get Robert looking at all sorts of stuff on the internet. You've scuppered our plans. So me and Robert, we're going to confess here. Me and Robert, we were going to launch a bank together. We were going to call it N27. Um, But we'll put that on hold for now. We'll keep it a secret. But what did that stand for? So I've got something. Is there something you can share about N26 future product line? Uh, it doesn't say exclusive, but something exclusive. <laughs> but something exclusive, just for the podcast? Yeah. 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 Okay. It's all right. No one's listening. No one's listening. Like How many read it? How many listeners? We have about 20. Okay, cool. Awesome. Well, we're going to... No. Uh, so, I, yes, I can. Um, I think one of the things that we're very, very passionate about is solving uh, di- digital customer service. Um, so, there's lots of banking things that we're going to do. Obviously, I could reel off things about open banking. I could talk about different types of currency that we will look to. I, will, I could talk about how you can share. As far as customer support is concerned, I mean, one of the things that's really interesting from a market perspective is the differences of expectation from a customer support. So, in the UK, what's really interesting is customer support is a good 50% of the product experience that people expect. Um, and it's very much associated to voice. And it's very much associated with, if it doesn't work, I want something back, which is very different from a European perspective, which is more about help me with my stuff. So we want to actually digitize and move to a self-service model so that we can then scale our customer support. Because one of the problems that digital banks have is that as we grow so rapidly, our customer base grows astronomically, right? And one of the things that scales with a customer base is customer support. 
So we built our chatbot from scratch ourselves. One of the reasons that we did that was we wanted to innovate on top of it. So if we had integrated a chatbot, we wouldn't be able to enhance the product offering. And this year, we're very, very focused on self-service. And there's a couple, there's three different kind of streams of that piece of work. One is how can you find the information that you need by yourself within the app? The other is making the product so intuitive that the help parts pop up as you go through the customer journey. And the third part is really making sure that when you do need to contact someone, we've really protected our customer service agents to make sure that when someone contacts them, it's about something that they need a qualitative answer towards. So from a consumer perspective, when you need to contact someone, you can, but you can solve those other things yourself. So things like how do we make sure that, I mean, everyone's had to change a phone number with a bank once at some point in time. Calling up and pushing 15 different buttons and getting into a queue and then getting transferred and the call dropping, that's not a great customer experience. With digital, why can't you do that in the application? We have strong customer authentication. We have PSD2, which makes sure that everything is safe. There's no reason why you can't verify yourself again and make sure that you can change your core data in the app. So we're going to move to that part. And the other part is really how can we increase that sharing functionality? One of the things that traditional banks have done is, is really take that joint account, right? Um, but if I go back to what I said earlier about us not being the people that tell you what how to do your money, how to do you, essentially, the sharing functionality that we've built and we're rolling out, we're at 60% of our users now, is that you can share with up to 10 people. Um, but to make our product as flexible as that is, we also need to make sure that we build out the internal transaction monitoring. So for every one piece of innovation that we build, we have to build three or four pieces of of compliance and fraud prevention. And that is one of the things that we face. And it's also the same thing that traditional banks face. You know, you, you can't build on innovation if you can't also then consistently build on your fraud prevention. Because the more accessible you make your product, you can't choose who you make it accessible to. I think the reason that we have that many customers is a couple of different things, but the biggest thing is the first problem that we solved. So the way that we build products is really to start with a problem. So it, it is very user focused, but it's more specific than that because it's what problem for the user are we solving with this solution. So one of the biggest problems in Europe as the borders dropped and we became, you know, with the refugee crisis and and really people moving across Europe much more fluidly was that even though you could move across Europe, you still couldn't get a bank account in the country that you stopped in. Um, and that was because you needed this vicious cycle of information. So you just arrived in a country um, and you got a job, but the job won't pay you until you get a bank account, but the bank account won't pay you until you get an apartment, but the apartment won't give you a lease until you have a salary. Hmm, how do you solve that vicious cycle of information? And so really by solving that one problem, we created something that was really accessible for people no matter where they were from or who they were. We have these C-level customer roundtables and three uh, executives sit down with five or six customers one evening and we just talk about anything that comes up. And uh, last week I was at one um, with this guy from Iran and he said, you know, there's not many options for Iranian nationals. Uh, and N26 is one of the ones that he can get a bank account with. So being able to make banking accessible for everyone, no matter where they're from, is really a big part of that. So if you were not N26 and you could be any other challenger bank, what would it be? Ooh, what would it be and why? Challenger bank? Challenger bank, yes. Challenger bank. <clears throat> traditional bank. Yeah, 
I don't think, I mean, it's a politically correct answer, but I'm actually considering it. What, what has an added advantage over us at the moment? I think that's the question. Where, where else would I go where I have scale? We are a regulated bank, so there's a requirement associated as far as the banking legislation is concerned. I wouldn't personally move to someone who's... I wouldn't move to Revolut, but that's not because of Revolut. It's because I, li I enjoy the constraint of the regulated environment, and I think learning how to innovate in that is only good for people. Um, without, you know, if you have a blank canvas, how do you know what to write? If you say, here's the space that you can operate in, you have to get really creative as far as innovation is concerned and learn how to ask why, ask why not, push the boundaries, work with the regulator to say, how are we going to do this? I think Monzo is really interesting. I think uh, Tom Blomfield is very clearly the face of Monzo. I am impressed by the customer service levels that they have. I, I think as far as the product is concerned... I think we're comparable. I think in the UK we've got a little bit of work to do and we're focused on doing that in the first half of this year. Um, but, yeah, I don't think I'd move at the moment. I remember seeing this um, very famous video where you had the CEOs of Monzo, N26 and Revolut. And uh, there was quite a lot of animosity uh, on stage. I mean, was that for the audience? I mean, what's the relationship like between the CEOs? I actually don't think that they've met the three of them since that panel. It would be really interesting if we could get TechCrunch to redo that and then convince them all to turn up. I think that uh, Monzo and N26 have a more similar mindset as far as the user is concerned. Revolut have, are, are taking a different path. I mean, that video is a very clear example of it. And they uh, are taking a, a much a different regulated path as well. But in the end, like I think it's, like I said, as far as looking at what people are doing concerned, I wouldn't look at it on a month-by-month month or a quarter-on-quarter quarter basis. I would look at things in two years and say, how did it turn out? What, what things moved? Because quarter-on-quarter quarter is we're always going to shift alongside each other. Banking in itself is a massively commoditized market. Um, and even in digital banking, it's starting to be commoditized as far as the user experience is concerned. So I think what's going to be really interesting is who pushes through that barrier again, um, because we all kind of started at the same time and we all have now a similar offering. Um, really, who's going to push that boundary to see what, what can be done because banking is this weird industry where if you ask users what they want from a, a bank, they generally say, like Henry Ford said, a faster horse. Um, but the only way that we innovate on the digital banking industry is to move to cars and, and automobiles. And, and can I ask, in terms of the early days of N26, were there any close shaves where it could have gone horribly wrong? I don't know a lot about the early days. I think that there are, we learn things all the time. I think one of the interesting things is how we responded. We've had a number of different uh, experiences with fraud um, and we have responded as fast as we could possibly respond and that has been a good thing because I think as far as uh, the other digital banks as well are concerned, it's not good for any of us for things to get exposed in that way um, and, the, and the faster way that we can respond is to make sure that we continue to build that trust with the customer. We just need to continue to respond to these things as quickly as possible because if we don't, trust is hard to build and easy to lose. Talking of uh, hard to win and easy to lose, um, before we were talking about the, some recent articles, uh, and it's not just you, it's people like uh, 
Revolut and other banks that have, uh, have had some sort of adverse media in people like places like Sifter. How do you deal with that, and uh, how do you build back that trust? I think the the press is an interesting kind of side part to this job. Um, one of the reasons that it's so intense is that uh, neobanks in general are having this time where users are starting to trust digital with their finances, right? We've had uh, we've had a couple of years now where people have got Google Homes and Alexas and, and things that they're starting to trust digital with more information and they're moving their finances to that user experience where they can get it. Um, and with that comes the attention and the press. I mean, we ourselves have had, with 4 million customers, you have a lot of people looking at you. And that comes with the with the price tag, right? If you want to if you want to push the boundaries this far, and you really want to change an industry, you have to be prepared for people to have an opinion and look at you really closely. I think what's really important, and this is where all the competitors can work together really well, and I think we're doing a good job, is to say that we are regulated to the nth degree. N26 is regulated to the same level that Deutsche Bank is, right? So we get no pass on security or anything like that. It's very difficult difficult to scale that information because digital in general has a lower security feeling associated to it than a bricks and mortar does. Um, but we need to be really clear and that's where being a licensed bank is very helpful but also is, is a line that we cannot cross. And so I think that the press is a side hustle that we should watch. I mean, nothing that I see in the press is new information. Often it's outdated information that we've already addressed with our customers or internally. And so I think it's interesting for people who are watching the fintech industry. But as far as my day-to-day -day is concerned, it has little impact on the decisions that I make. So you don't see the fintech bubble bursting anytime soon? No. Not as far as people's obsession with uh, instantaneous responses, uh, as far as instant clicks. We're moving, people are moving from Instagram to TikTok. People are going to move from Santander to N26. I think it's, it, it's not a bubble. Um, it's just a way of doing things. And I think it will get even more intense as it rolls on. So I know we're running out of time. So I'm going to ask you um, one question in relation to press. So what's the funniest fake news story that you've heard in the payment space? So I'm going to tell you my two. The first one was quite interesting where somebody said as a joke that a bus just drove past me and took a payment on my contactless card. And actually the press picked it up and said, oh my God, this is really happening. And the second one was where this guy in America was um, selling Chucky, Chucky dollars, which was basically his own. He was selling Bitcoin, but it wasn't Bitcoin. It was almost like... Uh, like cookie dough vouchers. So what's the funniest fake news stories that you've heard? Yeah, I don't know if it's fake, but I heard a story uh, in China. So WeChat has pay functionality in it and with face verification. And I heard a story that uh, there was this insane amount of fraud going on on this person's account. And what they realized was that their child, who resembled them very closely, uh, actually could work their face verification and had started going to the local milk bar and buying chips and lollies and sweets for all their friends just by putting their face into the face recognition. And I think, yeah, I'm going to keep face recognition off my phone. My daughter looks very much like me. Robert, do you have anything to add? 
No, I think uh, it, it'd be good to just finish as as we like to with something about where where you think the future is. Where 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 is the future for N twenty six? What 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 is the natural progression? So in five years' time, how are people going to be banking? So I think that what we're seeing at the moment in fintech is this prolification of 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 services. So there's lots of digital banks, but there's also more in the fintech space. Um, and what we'll see, and I think this is the same in any economy, is you see a prolification and then you see an aggregation. And I think the first step to the aggregation with finance is open banking. Um, it won't make it happen straight away. But I see in the next five years, there's two things that I think will happen. One is a really serious aggregation of, of financial management in a digital space. So I think the user experience will win in the end, but who you need to get through the next couple of years to the point where the user experience is something where people will converge on, especially with open banking, if they don't have to change accounts, which I don't think is something that people will do in the future, you will choose who you make your transaction with. And I think that the user experience will win there. And the second is I think cards will disappear. So then if we have an association from an emotional perspective with the cards that we use, which is very clear, we all have incredible designed, flashy, fancy cards. We have the best, but... <laughs> But how do you then take that personalization, that elitism, that ego that comes with a card and translate it to a digital experience? I think that's going to be something that we need to make sure that we get right. Fantastic. Thank you very much for being on with us today. We really enjoyed your time. Thank you all in the audience. Thank you for your questions. Um, Suresh, any final words before you get on your skateboard to hell? Thank you, everybody, for listening and um, hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you. Fintech Unplugged is available for download on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast and TuneIn. So please subscribe today and remember to give us a five-star rating.